Hi. Welcome to issue 13 of Scout and Birdie. At first sight. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So we picked the theme for this issue at first sight because we thought it would be a lovely sort of light theme for people to explore. And it's the middle of the winter. and We all kind of want to break from the gloominess and the dreariness. Mm-hmm. And then the artist sort of took it in a different direction. Yeah. When, when you think of at first sight and you think of the first impressions you have of a person, it's really that sizing someone up, what are your immediate thoughts? And so we end up diving in to more themes of masculinity, femininity, the kind of way people relate to you and the power dynamics that just come naturally to our lives. So it was a really interesting issue to just hear all of these different points of view and a very, very lovely one. Yeah, and it's always cool to see how artists working separately interpret the theme and we have such overlapping themes in Mm -hmm. this issue, more so than any other issue we've worked on. Yeah, it's like there is just a little bit of a heartbeat underlining this issue and that's so lovely when people are just on the same wavelength. Yeah. It's been a really fun issue to work on. Uh, Yeah, we traveled for this issue to interview someone in their studio, and we interviewed our first person internationally, so we did that over Skype, which was really fun. Scout and birdies going all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we're so excited to share this issue with you, and we'll take you right into it. So please enjoy issue 13, At First Sight. First up in the issue, we have Kendra Stevens. And Kendra is the host and curator of Serving the Sentence, which is a live lit event that takes place the second Tuesday of every month at the Heartland Cafe Bar, which is formerly the Redline Tap. And Anna and I have both done that show, so that's how we met her. (laughs) Yeah, it's a wonderful show to do, and everyone who's in Chicago should go check it out. Yeah. So we're really excited to share with you Kendra's piece, True Romance. I only have one regret, that last drink, and that my ex-boyfriend is puking on my roommate's rug, and that I just got drunk for the first time with my ex-boyfriend in a dorm room, and that I'm about to start making out with my ex-boyfriend while I'm drunk for the first time, and that he threw up a little on my VHS copy of True Romance. And that my roommate walked in as I was starting to clean up the vomit, which I'm sure didn't look great. So I guess it's really more one handful of regret. I skipped class the next morning to clean it up, and it was spotless. You couldn't even tell that there had been vomit on it. I brought several friends into my room, friends who told me I should pay for the rug and asked them where the stain was. They couldn't find it. My roommate asked me to pay for it anyway. The amount just happened to be the same amount she owed for her previous month's phone bill. I moved out at the semester break and took the rug with me. I never drank in high school or my freshman year of college, but I had transferred sophomore year to the college in my hometown, signing the paperwork a few weeks before being dumped by that same ex-boyfriend. He had rediscovered religion and decided God doesn't want us to be together because it's a distraction from him. I had been in Minneapolis my freshman year, and I never drank, rarely went downtown, never went to concerts, never went to Prince's Club, and minced out on a lot because I felt like that would be unfaithful to him somehow. Now I was back home at a school I had vowed I would never go to because I had transferred to be closer to him and he had dumped me. 
then blamed it on God, then immediately transferred to an arts high school out of state. Seemed like as good a time as any to start drinking. He was two years younger than me, and when I was in junior high, our families had briefly gone to the same church. His mom played piano and would accompany me on my clarinet solos for solo and ensemble contests. He told me once he sat and listened to me practice with his mom and was moved by my playing. It wasn't love at first sight, but it was the first seed of a crush on me. I had not noticed him in the room. We were later in the fall musical together my senior year of high school, his sophomore. He remembered me, went out of his way to become friends with me, had a clear and massive crush on me while I denied it. I didn't want to like him, didn't want to start dating someone before I graduated, and my friend liked him. After a few months of talking and laughing with him like I had never done with anyone before, and looking into his baby blue eyes, I admitted my feelings. We started dating. It felt perfect for about 18 months. I'd never had a boyfriend before. As far as I knew, he was the first boy to ever like me, to believe I was smart and funny, pretty and talented, and he was the first person who ever told me I was those things. I had never felt as comfortable with anyone else. I'd moved around a lot as a kid, was shy and felt anxious around people. I finally started making girlfriends in high school, even close friends, but there was always stuff I could never tell them. I told him all of it. I was completely in love. He liked me first, had liked me before I knew him, and the bitter irony was, two years later, I was the one desperately trying to get him back trying to be the cool girl, fine with him going away and expecting me to be there when he appeared, being fun and casual and listening to him empathetically when he came back, trying to make myself return to a religion that had consistently let me down and made me feel unhappy all through my teens. I went to church three times a week. He didn't go there, but his family did. I sat in the pew wondering why I was there, how sad and pathetic I must look to everyone else, and would be hung over on Sunday mornings because I really couldn't fully commit to the religion thing. I was trying to make him love me again and figure out who I was without him simultaneously. All through college, he haunted me. Even as he went out of state for college and I made friends, went to parties drunkenly and soberly, made out with guys, traveled over spring breaks, studying in London for a semester. He had a real knack for showing up right as I'd start to forget about him. Literally just appearing in my apartment. One night I arrived home looked to my right to read a message on the fridge that said, Kendra, your brother called you to warn your ex-boyfriend is back in town. Then looked to my left to see my ex-boyfriend turning the swivel chair in our living room to face me. Like a James Bond villain. At the first sight of him at these reappearances, my heart would flutter with, Remnants of deep-seated affections, hope that we could rekindle our romance, and anger. With each sight of him, it became more obvious I was just his distraction until he left again. I was so angry, yet so longing to spend time with him that I allowed him to reappear, disrupt my life, and re-break my heart. I fell back into it every God damn time because there was always a joke only he got, a reference only he would make, a familiar comfortableness that I still only felt with him. Like an old sweater from the back of the closet, I would tell myself to get rid of him, but then slip into it to feel warm and cozy while watching a movie.
or doing laundry. Mostly, I just really, really missed my friend. The feelings I had when he would show up were so strong while I was in them. Every time felt terrible. But looking back, I didn't realize that every time hurt just a little bit less. Seeing him drop just a little bit lower on my list of priorities. Because the funny thing is, now I can't remember the last time I saw him. I'm sure I didn't know it would be the last time I would see him. I have all these strong memories of being so happy when we were together, then devastated when we broke up, then angry and desperate after he left. But then, right around my last semester of college, it all fades. Over time, we just stopped seeing each other. There was no big fight. No one sat me down for an intervention. I never had some aha moment. It just slowly disappeared, like the now barely visible scar on my heart. We're here with Zach Bartz, who is sharing a series of abstract portraits with us. Welcome. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and we're actually in Zach's space right now, his studio, and we're surrounded by all of his bright artwork and all of his supplies, and I wish y'all could see like how beautiful it is here with us right yes, now. It's really lovely to be somewhere other than our little recording nook, so. oh, yeah. and surrounded by beautiful visual art. So. Yeah, the whole point of this aesthetic is to have an organized chaos and to kind of feel like... You know, if you're underneath a bridge that's covered in graffiti, something that assaults the soft focus so that when you pay attention to one piece of art, you really have to intentionally focus on it because there's so much going on around you that if you just, like, let yourself have soft focus, you'd be overwhelmed. You wouldn't be able to take it in. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a way to just really overwhelm in order to focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's paintings all over the walls and Zach's art and other people's art scattered throughout the room. Yeah, the big concept of just collaborating, and it's all forward motion if you don't give up. You just need to keep painting and making work together. And when people visit and make work here, if they don't want to work on a canvas or a pa like a paper, I say draw on one of the pre-existing collaborative pieces. And if you don't like it, sign someone else's name. <laughs> just do it. It's a matter of doing it. It's not a matter of letting people know you're doing it, unless you want to, like, which is why I like post all of my stuff is to let people know, hey, I'm doing it. Like I'm, f I'm committed to this. This isn't just like so many artistic projects. People go, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm thinking about doing this. I'd love to. I'm working on this, and then it never happens. Mm. It's so much better to say, oh yeah, I did this. Here it is, fully formed. So. Yeah, you've talked a lot about the idea of sort of just putting it out there and letting it go, and just getting it out there in the universe and letting your art you know, be outside and experience the elements or, um, you know, giving your art away to people, um, like putting your art in mailboxes or yep. well, just yeah. and like red eye boxes, Chicago reader boxes, anywhere that people, you know, for those the you find it, you keep it series. I put that work out there cause it's work I made usually through a live painting session or stuff that I'm not necessarily honoring on my own wall. And it might be lesser within a group of my work, but isolated by itself in a red-eye box behind a bench, suddenly it has more value and it has more context and it has, there's more weight. And whoever has it, and I've had a lot of people who find them and send me a picture of it back on their wall. Mm -hmm. For them, there's a whole different experience associated with the work now. Um, and suddenly this, you know, this guy just needed to, you know, he was Michael Jordan playing baseball. He just needed to pick up a basketball. Like this painting found its, its avenue to be important because uh, otherwise next to everything else, maybe it just, it didn't, it couldn't keep up. Um, and also just closing the book on your work. Like if, if anything is so holy that you can't let it go, that you have, like that, 
you can't sell it, that you can't get rid of it, that you couldn't part with something bad happening to it. It's like that's there's, I don't know. I can't give so much to each painting. I can give so much to the process of painting because I can't dictate what's going to happen to the work. I can dictate what I will continue to do with the work. Uh, and I could lose all of this work, but as long as I can pick up a brush again, I can make more. Um, and through documentation, through showing it on Facebook or Instagram, that work lives and it can be affected. It doesn't need to be owned to be interacted with uh, or to inspire. My big thing is connect, affect, inspire. And if my work can do that digitally or in person or from a bench or in the rain or what, wherever, um, then that work did its job, whether or not it sold to someone. Yeah. Absolutely. You talk a lot about like the experience of your artwork, like live painting or the experience of where your art is being displayed or where it's being found or how people are connected to it. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you are also very involved in like live performing and comedy and you do a lot of work with curating the shithole yeah. um, and I wonder how doing that live performance and being involved in the shithole influences your paintings and well, your visual work it's, it's ultimately that it's all process over product and that it's about doing it and continuing to do it whether that's improv, whether that's producing whether that's painting, it's always about continuing to do it. Um, the live painting is a way to merge performance and painting that's tangible and intangible to get up in front of an audience. Because if I'm just like up in my attic and I make 30 paintings, um, people are like, that's cool, slow down. And if I get in front of an audience and I make one painting, they're like, that's cool, you should speed up. But if mm -hmm. I get in front of an audience and I make 30 paintings, they go, whoa, that was pretty cool. You know, just like, just like leaving a painting somewhere, it creates context. And for me, it creates stakes and I have to see things to completion. I can't half-ass it. I can't sit back on my skis, so to speak. I can't relax. Um, and I can't just be content with repeating myself. I need to always be taking risks and staying interested and staying clocked in. Because ultimately, in most of it, I've asked to do it. I, I've asked to be at an event. I've asked to pursue art every day. And if I'm going to do it, I need to do it the way that I want to do it and the way that... Uh, is most meaningful, which is, you know, making interesting work that I'm learning from. Um, yeah. I just love the way you talk about your artwork. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's um, being in this space, you can feel that energy that you have towards producing at a, a massive rate and producing this vibrancy. Your portraits have such an energy to them, so it's really lovely to see. Well, thank you. And, and the big thing is just that staying interested, so using color, not saying like, you know, all right, you have to make this certain background, you have to make, light has to work this certain way or not. Um, it's like, no, just, just what looks good. At the end of the day, art is aesthetic. Art, you can use it to convey truth or meaning or a message, or you can do it to mess with form. That's something in uh, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics he talks about, you know, but, but through understanding form, it's an aesthetic thing, you know, does it look good? Does it make you feel good? You know, do you like it? And then also, I'm reading this book by Adam Grant, it's called Originals. He talks about how the best way to ensure you have an original or a great or meaningful idea is through massive creation of work, through constantly making work, because at the end of your career or your life or both, your work is not judged by its averages, it's judged by its peaks. And the more volume you create, the better chance you have of making a peak. You know, and if you make a bunch of peaks, then you got a really good average, so that works too. But you just gotta have one good thing. Like Chumbawamba, you gotta have one fucking good thing. <laughs> you know? But hopefully my work is more, uh, more than Chumbawamba. But also, like, to go back to that shithole question, you know, it's, I want to bring fine art or quote-unquote fine art um, or the idea that painting is so distant from the public, I'd like to lower that because that's what really got me into painting was learning about the Impressionists, learning about the Modernists, learning that these people were just kind of broke and bold and, you know, took a lot of shit from a lot of people and from themselves but continued to make work whether or not it had a claim, whether or not it had uh, monetary, you know, um, value to anyone. And in that same way of lowering and making visual art more accessible, I would like to see through shithole 
improvisation and stand-up comedy and these kind of like backroom PBR-fueled art forms Mm -hmm. elevated to more of a fine art lens. So it's not just about people wasting away their college and post-college years in a bar. It's about people in pursuit of fine art the same way that these like impressionists were in the back of a bar pursuing what would become a $500 million painting. Like people know Van Gogh's name more than they know Botticelli's name, you know? There's something to be said about that. Van Gogh sold one painting in his whole life. If you saw him on the street, you wouldn't bust out your fine china for him. Our concept of who great artists, of these scholars, it's, it's so skewed because all great art starts at the ground level of just people making work. And so that's why I'm like making stuff every day is to say like anyone can do it. And through the connect effect inspire is that if, if you like my work, emulate it. If you don't like my work, respond to it. But either way, you're making work. And in this relay race of art, I pass the baton to you and you go ahead and do it too. And, and then I'll react to your shit. I'll either be excited about it and make more or I'll be intimidated and pissed off by it and I'll make more too. But either way, we're still going to, the paint's still wet. Like we're going to make some stuff. So Looking at the pieces that we are featuring online on scoutandbirdie.com, um, you were telling us before about how you found inspiration for these pieces and how you actually found the materials that you were using. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so the majority of, I mean, like 95% of the stuff I use is from the thrift store across the street from my house uh, and slash studio. So I, whatever I can carry, I bring back. So through that improvisational mindset, I'm either looking for something to jump out and inspire me either directly or indirectly. So I can either see like my thrift store Jesus series, if I see a picture of Jesus, bingo, that's going to be a thrift store Jesus. I will buy that regardless of if I know what's going to happen with it because I know I can isolate Jesus and then figure it out, put him in a curious situation that I can paint around. Um, But with these, there were five 43 by 31 inch frames. The frames were plasticed up, so they were still really nice. These were five photographs that some artist paid a lot of money to get them framed and set for a show, and then now they're in the elephant graveyard of art, which is at the thrift store. Um, They were half off, and uh, Dan Wilcop, who shares the studio with me, was able to help me carry them. So (laughs) I knew that five of these portraits, you know, and they were originally landscape, but by turning them portrait, it was a series, just like through improv, when you see a pattern, you can identify it to be a series. When I see more than two of the same material over at that thrift store, I know it has the potential to be a series. Maybe not with the first or the second thing I make, but the fact that there's a grouping of them and I can continue to create until I you know, make a discovery that I can then you know, grow on and, and emulate and then refine. Working out the thrift store stuff at the beginning was... I felt intimidated to make fine art. I felt intimidated by canvases and oils and the concept of making flowers and boats. I wanted to make good work like I saw at the museum, but I was afraid to let myself try. And more importantly, let myself fail. And by taking maybe a PBR box, maybe something I find across the street, um, a piece of paper, whatever, an expendable material, I can take risks and make discoveries. It's like when you're trying to write a paper with a pen, not on a computer, but like you're like writing with a pen and then your pen goes out. And so you have to go to a new piece of paper and scribble and tear and lick it and shake it and hit it and curse. And then finally you get a little bit of ink. Then you go back to your paper and you focus again. And so that in essence is what I'm doing with my creativity with the thrift store pieces is trying to shake things up and tear things and lick things and, you know, break things and yell at stuff until I make a discovery. You know, I was relinquished of all of this pressure to make something great. And now that I was able to, to get through that and had a catalyst to discovery, I can go to a canvas and be confident because I've done it before and I can do it again because I learned from it. And we're learning from you. So thank you Hell so yeah. much for being <laughs> here with, or for having us in your space. Thanks for having me. Um, and if people want to keep up with you on Instagram, uh, where should they do that? It's I'm Zach Bartz. So I-M-Z-A-C-H-B-A-R-T-Z. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you Hell so yeah. much. Thank you.
Next up in the issue, we have our friend Emily Matapusi-Pera with another poem. Yeah, and since Emily is in Rhode Island, her piece will be read by Anna Wolf. So please enjoy On the Death of a Small Creature. On hind legs you raise to attention, poising your three-inch stature inside my sink. Your whiskers sniff-sensed my approach before I caught you in my sightlines. Twitching your shock-frozen body, your heart beat faster than mine, but you held my gaze steadily with black and beady eyes. In split seconds, I reached for the ladle, which greeted your head, with one hit that stunned and the next that slayed. A kitchen marauder, a field mouse, you, on that bright Thanksgiving morning, when you entered the garbage disposal to the great beyond. All right, next up in the issue, we have Jasmine Davila. You'll remember Jasmine from our Be Kind Rewind issue. And Jasmine co-curates a wonderful live lit event each month called Misspoken. Mm -hmm. That is an event for female identified storytellers. So definitely check that out if you're in Chicago. Yeah, so please enjoy Jasmine's piece. Wednesday night karaoke. I was at Brando's Speakeasy, this bar in Dearborn that is almost exactly midway between the Harold Washington Library on State and the Federal Prison on Clark, when a small man with curly salt and pepper hair tried to buy my friend Chloe a drink. It was the night of Valentine's Day, and though I had been looking forward to spending the night at home, alone, eating my feelings, I accepted Chloe's invitation. For I am Filipino, and as karaoke is practically the Philippines' national sport, along with basketball and cockfighting, I felt duty-bound to attend. So Brando's had a fancy electronic system where you can sign yourself up using a massive touchscreen that was mounted near the front door. I found this preferable to the usual method of flipping through a heavy vinyl binder of poorly photographed pages with songs organized by title or artist. This gave Chloe and me more time to order snacks, happy hour specials that included things like $5 flatbreads and teriyaki meatballs, find ourselves a spot near the stage, and check out the crowd. Now, there were the obvious regulars, the people who didn't have to stare at the lyrics displayed on overhead monitors while singing songs by Lady Gaga or Kelly Clarkson. Across the room was a large group of people who cheered for each other heartily, but also spent a lot of time looking at their phones. Sitting with me and Chloe was a girl, Jackie, who was eager and excited and made us all laugh when she accompanied her performance of Queen's Bicycle with interpretive dance. Behind us at the bar sat a few stray pairs and some single men who nursed their drinks while eyeing the one TV in the place that was tuned to the Olympics. Now, Chloe was early in the lineup that night, cooing, I second that emotion by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles while playing up to the crowd. She left the stage, getting in people's faces to make them smile and dancing with whoever was game enough to join her out on the floor. She wore a leopard print dress, so she looked hot. But more than that, she looked like she was having fun because she was having fun. Now for her second song, Chloe sang Michael Jackson's PYT, which really got people going. Just picture it. A small dance floor crowded with middle-aged office workers in business casual attire. Art students dressed like hippies, goths, and hippie goths, and and couples dressed for a romantic night out in their nicest party dresses and suits. The song ended much too quickly, I thought, and we settled down to hydrate ourselves before the next time we felt compelled to get up and dance. My attention was on the stage, so, of course, I missed the small man with the curly salt and pepper hair creep up on us. I can still feel his breath on my face, and the way he breathed, quickly, shallowly, like he was trying to catch up. Leaning forward, knees bent, he had his hands planted on the fronts of his thighs, so he was a one-man huddle. He wanted to buy a lady's drink, he slurred, but he had eyes only for Chloe. Chloe, who was no longer relaxed but alert, sitting up, back straight, tense, she politely declined, not really looking at him as she did. And he was so confused. Why couldn't he buy her a drink? He just wanted to buy her a drink, but she said no again, claiming that she doesn't drink alcohol. 
more confusion. So Chloe gave this guy a break, tried to be nice. She grabbed my arm, claiming me as her girlfriend, which I gamely went along with and said if he wanted to get her something, anything, he could maybe get us some water. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to buy her water, even though we insisted. Jackie piped up, I'd like some water. And the guy barked, I'm not going to get you water, which struck me and Jackie instantly as being rude and also hilarious. So we just laughed. Laughter was, it seemed, magical in that it made this fellow disappear. And once he did, the tension in Chloe dissipated and her erect carriage loosened so she could sit back with the rest of us and enjoy the singing again. Someone got up to sing Whitney Houston's I Have Nothing, and as I joined the entire bar and song, I was glad to be there singing my feelings in a room full of people instead of eating them alone. Don't make me close one more door. I don't want to hurt anymore. Stay in my arms if you dare, or must I imagine you there? And then he was back. The small man returned, breath still shallow, still wanting to buy Chloe a drink, only this time, instead of trying to get through to her, he addressed me. He didn't want to offend me, but was I sure he couldn't buy Chloe a drink? I asked him, well, what did she say when you asked her before? Well, um, what did she say, I asked. I didn't look at him. Instead, I watched the stage for another song, another singer, while I felt Chloe grab my hand and squeeze it tightly. She said no, he reminded me. Well, I replied, I guess that's your answer. That's it. I didn't watch him walk away. Instead, I turned to Chloe to check that she was all right. I rolled my eyes with Jackie, and we talked about what an asshole this guy was for saying to her that he wouldn't get her water. All the while, I could still feel his eyes on us, watchful and hopeful, looking for another opportunity, another chance to speak to someone who wasn't interested in anything he had to say. Don't walk away from me. I have nothing, nothing, nothing if I don't have you. All right, we're here with Olivia de Moraes, who is sharing her song, Post-It, with us. Welcome, Olivia. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being you here. You with my name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Olivia is joining us over Skype, and this is Scout and Birdie's first Skype interview. So thank you for tuning in. <laughs> so uh, there, there's something that maybe... I, I should probably explain. Olivia de Moraes, it's my actual actual name. Mm -hmm. But then um, I don't know if uh, if in English it's like anagram. It's like Moraes, Mo Moraes. Mm -hmm. It's like M O R A E. S. So the letters in the in the different order means loves. The, the, uh, that change was really significant for me because uh, before this project, I used to be really a rocker. I I was really into playing guitar and and being aggressive. So that's really a breakthrough, a new concept. So I mixed up the letters and got a new concept where I can be just more um, sensitive. This project uh, reveals a lot more from me than uh, the, the concept I had before. Because before being just like really an ultra transparent person in an, an, an artistic way. I used to be a um, rocker because I wanted to fit in, in in a rock environment, you know, that's really masculine. So I really kicked out every, every preconcepted uh, vision of music I had before. 
and started to really get into that personal thing. Um, do you feel like the like the rock scene in Manaus or in Brazil in general is like overtly masculine or um, like very much dominated by men and male presence? I think that's something we can call effect in worldwide because when we feel rock music, we relate that kind of music with masculine emotions that really are just human emotions. In the same way, we relate delicate music with women and actually it's just human feeling. So I really, I, I really think that those barriers, uh, those um, frontiers, should not exist today. After everything we are crossing, culturally and socially. So uh, that's why I really gave up from being in a rock band and then just began to be a musician without any frontier, you know. I've chosen to play on stage music that I could be respected for my skills as a guitarist, you know. I think that's that, that's something that women in music always stand at their feet, especially on rock music. To be respected is to play guitar really well, play an instrument really well, not just be a good, have a good voice or something like that. If you want to have ground on rock, you have to be a good instrumentalist. You know, which means that you have to really compete with guys to have your space. I usually think that the things I am working right now were more, more intimate. So thinking about Post-It, um, we'd love to hear what the lyrics are dealing with and the themes that are coming up in that specific song. Post-It is the proof and I think the, the real deal about my new project because I've never been exposed in such way, artistically speaking. I've never chosen to be exposed that way. The, the song is about, in Portuguese, I am really asking somebody to not forget me. Uh, don't forget about me. Don't forget me. And that's really something I was asking to myself in 2017. Yeah. Because in 2016, I had loss that really I didn't think I would get over. And like December, I, I've lost a girlfriend, the person I loved the best, and my great-grandmother. She was sick for three months, and then she died three days before 2017. So that year would be the worst of my life. I had absolutely no doubt about it. Then I proposed something to myself. I, I said to myself, well, if I get through this year, I think I would get, get over really every difficulty or problem of my life. I would get over everything. If I just get over 2017, I really am ready for everything else. So I started recording one second a day and then I decided to make a video clip 
out of it. The thing is, in every day I have some doubts about which second was the best for me. And that thought really put some optimistic view for myself because I was saying to myself, oh, I am not that miserable. I am actually have several moments and I am having trouble in picking one second that really uh, represents the day. That was so meaningful to me because it meant that really in the worst time of my life, I had, I, I was having trouble to pick one moment. And I realized that even when I wasn't feeling good about myself, even when I was feeling ugly from the inside in a deep sense of ugliness, the world was showing me different kind of beauty. I I always remember in the time I was making the, the video clip, uh, one day I, I was feeling really shitty about myself and I went to my backyard and there was a um, butterfly just swinging its and its wings and when I really observed from very very close I really thought she was dancing for me because she was turning around and make some beautiful dance and then I said to myself shit the world is really beautiful <laughs> <laughs> We really should look around. Yeah, so for listeners who are listening to the podcast, they can go on to scoutandbirdie.com and watch the music video. Mm -hmm. And if you watch the music video, you'll actually see that during your year of your clips um, of one second from each day, you visit Chicago. And that's how we know each other when you were visiting Chicago. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for meeting us on Skype and (laughs) recording this with us. Um, Thank you. It's so lovely to have you. And I'm sure everyone will enjoy your song, Post It. Thank you, too. I think I can speak proudly from the whole Amazon around me that (laughs) we are really pleasant to to be interviewed by Chicago. A 
as fotos que eu vou apagar Nada fica no lugar É tudo É tudo Não vai esquecer de mim Não vai esquecer de Next up, we have Scout and Birdie's number one sweetie pie, Mike Haverty. The big cheese. So many nicknames. <laughs> so many nicknames for this lovely, lovely human. You'll remember Mike from our Be Kind Rewind issue, and we are always so thrilled to have Mike back on the podcast. So please enjoy Mike's piece, Dear Masculinity. Dear Masculinity, Thanks for taking the time to open your mail. Very untoxic of you. 
I've been thinking about you. Two weeks ago, I'm leaving the Speedway in Alzip and approaching one of the side-by-side double doors, and I see a man approaching the other double door. He's a few steps away, and I prepare to hold the door open for the man by standing a little off to the right. At the same moment, he sees me a few steps away and prepares to hold his door open for me by standing a little off to the left. For a breath, we stand still, too close to our own doors in a deadlock of mechanical courtesy. In this stop second, I don't look up at you, and you don't look up at me. Time resumes, our doors swing in unison and slowly close without a squeak. So, like, was that you, masculinity? You, Carhartt jacket, pants with a lot of pockets, gray wraparound sunglasses, me, floral print shirt, burnt orange infinity scarf, too dandy, us... Acting in kindness, failing at our own kindness, bearing witness to ourselves, changing nothing, then silently walking away as if this wasn't goofy, as if we hadn't stumbled upon an ancient social dance of mankind. I hope this was you, masculinity, because that would mean that you have one endearing part of you. In the gruff way, I've come to endure you. If I had to list my grievances of you, I'm not sure where I'd start. Globally? Nationally? Microcosms? Present day? Or year one? The first game I played with the kids from my neighborhood was called Stick Fight. A quick walkthrough. Search your backyard for sticks suitable for hitting each other. Join the group of boys under the greenery of my backyard neighbor's pear tree in the summer. Hit the shit out of each other. Place the ice pack your mother gives you so it covers the whole left eye socket. After a few days pass, hang out with the same people again. Was that you then, masculinity? Boys being boys, copying men who are in turn puppets of other men, neighborhood dads telling their sons to beat each other up, heirloom emotional withholding passed down from generations out of tradition. You must have been there. With masculinity, stick fight is learning and can be added to a list headed Things I Learned, a wily thread of lessons and deferred pain and emotions for short-term gains. Over time, the name of this list changes. Things I learned becomes my strengths, then becomes what makes me me. Accumulating pain and maturing the what makes me me turns to things that suck, then reasons I don't like me, into things to block out, into reasons to black out, and a long period of no edits before changing to, I guess, As I'm saying it out loud right now, it sounds like trauma, but, like, no. To, sure, trauma. To, trauma. To, yes, capital T, trauma. Then back to trauma. And now to the current, yep. That happened. That's what I call trauma. I'm nervous joking around you. I mean, you are in all the jokes I used to laugh at, and the jokes I would yell loudly over others. You're the high school me who tried desperately to fit in with the boys club. I tried to conform to your comedy as the way, and it's left me with years living in parody. Each set, each show, each as a dude, each setup clarifying, I'm actually quite woke, with the same punchlines risking none of my own skin. From the stage, I'd see you hanging in the back near the bar, fist in your hand. I don't know if it was the voice in my head or you from the back, but I always heard it. You don't belong. You don't belong here. Even writing this letter, a fear lingers that I'll hear a guy's voice yell, Get him! and be beaten up. Any questioning of you exists with an imagined mob of toxic ideology incarnate waiting around the corner with baseball bats and other sports items. I started flirting with femininity, knowing you will be angry.
challenging your arbitrary rules of liberation, necklaces, bracelets, pearls, floral patterns, emotions worth sharing, practicing arts without trying to win at art, remembering you sitting in the back of my head in college, tisking skinny jeans, that's the gateway drug to girl pants. You're going out dancing to just dance it out? Mike, I know you discovered an article about androgyny and modeling, but you will never, ever be androgynous. It took me some years to build up the courage, but I ran through that gateway to girl pants. Did you see me? You definitely noticed the scarves getting longer, blossoming with color. Cardigans to sweaters to longer sweaters to longer cardigans to full-on sweater dresses. Coworkers noticed. Family noticed. The world showed me no shortage of amazing people who accepted me for who I am, while I still couldn't accept me. To me, it was all still about you. How much you saw me as not okay. How much you wouldn't stand it that was me. In each of those moments, burying myself was quicker than standing. I could have written this sooner, but I still held on to embodying a face of yours. The connection-starved funny man, the nerdy stoic, the best-dressed mystery dandy, the very aggressive know-it-all. You taught me well to just keep adapting. By no means am I absolved from hurting others. I've been horrible boyfriends, distant friends, ghosts, a shusher. I hate that the worst parts of you rattle inside me like a spray can building pressure. I am non-binary, but I hear you tink, katink, katink along. I have a privilege that came from passing, and I absolutely benefited from this in job interviews and everyday interactions. But passing in itself is not full privilege. Passing in itself is a prison and a loss. I grew up a boy, fit in my best with who was around me and what I figured I had to do under the fear that I wouldn't be accepted otherwise. There are things that were made easier for me, but there was a day-to-day -day degradation that I breathed in and accepted as a pain that I must become cozy with. To keep moving. Now... I'm in a non-man's land, an imposter to you, masculinity, an imposter to femininity, feeling like an imposter in queerness. For all these reasons and more, I would love to sign this letter, eat shit and burn. You are preposterous, but I think you detest compassion even more. You're more than just long, unruly beards groomed for character or cosmetic automobile genitalia. You're more than the male pattern baldness my gut links to emotional repression. You're more than the group of guys talking at length with their arms folded tight. You're the conversation we're not having. You're terrifying. I write this letter to demand this. Give them back. Give everyone back. Give back the time before we learn to withhold emotions. Give my brother back. Give my father back. Watch my brother, father, mother, and sister of every unnurturing male role enacted on them. Give me what everyone would become if we had purified you. I want to see who we are without this poison stopping us. Masculinity, I don't know what the point of you is is, or if you even have an upside that can in any way outweigh your toxicity. You are weird and strange and dumb and terrifying and beautiful. I don't know what makes you beautiful, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here. I will find your buttons, discover what makes you uncomfortable, and I will not stop mashing those buttons until you'll let go of me and the people I love. Until the next time we almost see each other. I'm H.
That's it. Thank you so much for being here. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Zach Bart's series of portraits, 43 by 31, and Olivia de Moray's music video for Post It. If you would like to stay connected to Scout and Birdie in between issues, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like us on Facebook. And if you would like to submit for future issues of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com, click on the submissions tab, and send us your stuff. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're going to play you out with another song by Olivia de Mores called Pleno Baishu. We'll see you next time with issue 14. Back to basics. Bye. Bye. Deixa eu te...